Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 1. I thought it was kind of humorous this morning because as people were walking in, they saw me and they said, oh, you're preaching this morning. And I said, I have no idea why they assumed that, but you were right. I think it's because I'm wearing a sport coat, um, which if you know me, that is not something that I normally wear. So, uh, yes, that is true. And uh, thank you for the compliments. Really, you should thank my mother. She's the one who helped me pick it out. That is why I'm still single. I'm kidding. That's not why. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, and starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that it teaches us, that it instructs us, that it corrects us, that it rebukes us and trains us in righteousness. God, we pray that you, by your spirit, would apply your word to our lives this morning. That you would be glorified, that your son Christ would be exalted, and that we would be edified and built up as a result. We love you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. So as I was preparing and studying for uh, this sermon and, and, and thinking on the idea of, of unity within the Christian church, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis, someone who most of you are most likely familiar with due to his, his work in the Narnia series and some other popular books by him. And in the preface to one of those other popular books, Mere Christianity, I don't know if it's his popular, most popular among the Narnia, but it's up there. In the preface to Mere Christianity, the very end, he gives an illustration of the household of God. And within this household of God, the household of Christianity, there's a long hallway. And within that hallway is several different open doors. And behind those doors are several different rooms. And those rooms represent the, the different denominations within the household of God and the house of Christianity. And in thinking about that illustration and that picture, it led me to ask a few different questions to myself and some questions that I'm going to throw out to you right now. And the first of which is, how do we maintain unity within the house? How do we maintain unity within the house? And what is it that characterizes this maintenance not only how do we maintain unity within the house, but how do we maintain unity with those in our own room? And then expanding past that, how do we maintain unity with those in different rooms? And this led to an even bigger question. 
Why strive for unity at all? Why strive for unity with those in other rooms? Why strive for unity with those in our own room? And this led to an even bigger question. What is the cause of our unity? What is it that actually unifies us? What determines a room to actually be a true room in the household of God? How do we determine who's actually a legitimate member of the household? And I hope to answer some of those questions um, through working through Ephesians chapter 4. But let me just give you the bottom line right up front. The bottom line that we're going to work through throughout the rest of our time together. The bottom line is this, that the church is one body. The church is one body united by the one Spirit whose head is the one Lord and who are the children of the one Father. Our unity as Christians is a deeply Trinitarian unity. It's informed and it's shaped by the reality that our God is triune. So as we work through um, Ephesians 4 and that bottom line, two big ideas to support that. One, there is an inseparable unity. Let me say that again. There is an inseparable unity of the church. And it is worthy to be kept. It's the first big idea. Second one, we are to keep and maintain this unity. There is an inseparable unity of the church, and it's worthy to be kept. Second, we are to keep and maintain this unity. So, to the first point, there's an inseparable unity that joins every member of the church and household of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore... Let's stop there. I therefore, or in other words, in light of all that was just said, this therefore is crucial to us understanding what follows. The therefore is the link between chapter 4, chapters 5, and chapter 6. It's the link between the back half of the letter to the Ephesians to the beginning of the letter to Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3. The therefore is the link between the beginning and the end of the letter. It connects the imperatives that we're going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. The to-dos and the to-bes. Those are the imperatives. It connects the imperatives with the indicatives. The things that have been done. The things that are said. The doctrine. The truths. The realities of, of what Paul has just laid out for us in the first three different chapters. And a question for us is, what is it about the realities and truths from chapters 1 through 3 that gives weight to the charge and calling in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and specifically for us this morning, just the first six verses of chapter 4. So to help us do that, let's look at what he says next in the very first verse. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul mentions a calling. A calling. Or in Greek, this is the word klesis. Which is also crucial to understanding what follows. And gives further clarification 
to the truth upon which the imperative finds its root. So the root word for the noun klesis, or calling, in the Greek is the word kaleo. And it refers to a, a, a type of call or summons. A summons from something to something. A call or a summons to a new position or a new status. And it's also helpful to note that this same Greek root word for calling, kaleo, is also the root word for the Greek word ekklesia, which might sound mostly familiar to you guys, which, which means assembly or gathering, or congregation, and is where we get the word for church. It's where we get the word for church. So what is this calling to which we've been called? And what is the source of the calling? What is this calling? What is this new position or this new status that we've been called to as believers? And who is the source of the calling to this new status or position? And in answering this question, it's going to help us answer the questions from the beginning. Why strive for unity? Why seek to maintain unity? It's going to answer the question of what is the cause of our unity? So looking just at verses 4 and 6, we're going to jump over verses 2 and 3 and look at verses 4 through 6 to help us answer that question. And ultimately, as, you'll, as we read, you'll notice that it's really a, a summary of chapters 1 through 3 in a lot of ways. So look, with, ver, look at verses 4 through 6 with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Note this, that seven times he uses the word one. He uses the word one several times in these, in these three verses. And, and catch this, because this will be the framework for how we'll, we'll break this down. Notice that three of those one statements is referring to the three persons of the Trinity. While the other four are speaking of our experience in relationship to those three persons. Again, there is the one Lord, or one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Let's look at that first one in verse 4. There is one Spirit. There is one Spirit. Because there is one Spirit, there is one body. Why is that so? Because it is the Spirit. It is the Spirit's work that unites us into the one body. It is the Spirit who creates the one body and the one new society. You don't have to turn there, but but here, as, as I read 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, again, Paul is giving the, this um, great picture of the body of Christ and how it works together. But just look what he, listen to what he says in the first two verses. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one body, or sorry, for in one spirit, 
We were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. It is the spirit who unites us into the one body. It's the spirit's work that creates this one body. He's attributed to that work. It is his work. And he's the one who unites us into the one body and the one new society. Secondly, he mentions the one Lord. This is in reference to Jesus, the one Lord. And the experience directly connected and related to him is the one faith and the one baptism and the one hope. Why are these three things related directly to the one Lord, Jesus Christ? Because, it, because Christ is the object of the one faith. Christ is the object of the one baptism. Christ is the object of our one hope. Now we need to make an important distinction and note that this is not talking about individual subjective faith. That there's a one individual subjective faith being mentioned here. What he's getting at is that Christ is the object of faith. There's one objective faith, one gospel, one truth, one Christian doctrine teaching in which we are putting our hope in. One truth, one faith, one gospel that saves us to which we believe in and put our trust in. And there's only one baptism. This is not talking about a specific mode of baptism. But again, it's talking about the object and source of it. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Let me just read this to you. Listen. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Paul, even in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, he's already spent time on this theme. In a verse that we read earlier, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of a great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he has seated us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. We have one faith 
in one baptism. For it is in Christ and his gospel that we have believed and are saved and are given new life. And it is into him that we have been baptized. And Christ is our one Lord. He is our one Lord. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. It is in him that we have the one hope. Look back to Ephesians chapter 1. So much of this chat is already taught through, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time other than just reading these so you can hear and catch where Paul's getting his logic from and his definition for these terms. But Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's praying for the saints. He prays, he says, I do not think, cease to give thanks to God for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the workings of his great might, that he worked out in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above, listen to this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Christ is our one Lord. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the one church. It is in him and in whom that we look forward to in hope and expectation of his return. He is our one hope. He is our one baptism. He is our one faith. Thirdly, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, references the one Father. The one Father. We have the one Spirit creates the one body. The one Lord who's connected to the one faith, the one baptism, the one hope. And there's the one Father. The one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Most manuscripts most manuscripts have, a lot of manuscripts have added a you before the all to indicate that there's a specific all that's being referenced. The one God and Father over you all, who is through you all and in you all. The point of those changes were to make the, the clarification that this is talking about the one God and Father over all, who's over you all, who is the one family. There is one Father. And there is one family. We have the one Spirit, the one Lord, and the one Father. The one Father. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. As Paul has just been expounding upon the glorious reality of, of Jews and Gentiles being saved by the same gospel and being brought 
into the same family with the same inheritance. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Through him, who's the him? Through Christ. We have access through the one Holy Spirit to the Father who is the head or the the Father of the household. We have one Father. We have one Lord. There is the one Spirit. So, next question. What or who produces this unity and this new society? Kind of an obvious question. Who is it that produces this unity? When well, light of all that we just said, definitely not us. We do not produce this unity, but God does. Who produces this unity? God does. Who produces the new society? God does. He is the source of it. And I love what uh, John Stott, he's a pastor. Theologian, dead now, I think, right? Yes, Chad's nodding his head. I love, he takes it even further in his commentary on Ephesians 4. And here's what he says. We must assert, in light of all this, we must assert that there can only be one Christian family. Only one Christian faith, hope, baptism, and only one Christian body. Because there is only one God. There is only one God who is triune, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. He says, is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. In sum, first big idea, the church is the inseparable and unbreakable assembly, congregation of the called ones. Those who are called into the one family of the one Father who share of the one faith, the one baptism, and the one hope in the one Lord, and who make up the one body by the work of the one Spirit. Again, as I said before, our unity is a deeply Trinitarian unity. It informs and it shapes our understanding of the unity that we have as believers. And in light of this reality, The unity of the body and this new society that God creates and produces, it's worthy to be kept. And more than that, it's commanded to be kept. 
The unity of the body is worthy to be kept and commanded to be kept. And this leads to the second big idea. We are to keep and maintain the unity of the church. We are to keep and maintain, uphold the unity of this new society. Look at verses um, 1 through 3 of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to keep and maintain this unity with humility, with gentleness or meekness, and with long-suffering. Now, now, that raises a question, right? Because if this new society, if this one body that is produced by God Himself and is an inseparable and unbreakable unity, as God Himself is inseparable and unbreakable, then how is it that we can be called to maintain it? Why is it that we're being called to maintain it? Why are we being called to maintain something that is indestructible? How is it that we can maintain something that is inseparable? How? There's a distinction that needs to be made between one, the unseen the invisible reality of the church that's created and established by God Himself that we just talked about. And with the appearance of disunity in the church that seems to be, and is in many ways, outwardly and visibly contradicting that unseen and invisible reality. That makes sense? Let me say it again. There's a distinction that needs to be made between the invisible reality of the church that God Himself has created that's inseparable. There needs to be a distinction between, between that reality and the reality of the appearance of disunity in the church that outwardly and visibly contradicts that unseen and invisible reality. Let, let me explain with, with an illustration that, that might help. Imagine a family, a husband and a wife, Dave and Kim. Let's just use those names. And Dave and Kim have three kids, Stephanie, Benjamin, and Michael. If you're noticing because you know my family, that is the name of my family. I picked our names because if I picked any other name, it might land on one of your families, and then you'd be offended potentially, so I would just offend my family. So I'm just kidding. They're okay. So we have a family. We'll just call it the Warren family because I just, I just pointed this out. It's fine. They're a family. They're a loving family. And over time, strife hits this family. The strife and the quarreling begins in David and Kim's life and marriage. And this leads to hostility and brokenness between their relationship 
and over time between the three kids. And eventually this quarreling continues and continues and continues and this fighting never ever stops. And Dave and Kim separate. And the kids resent the parents. This is a horrible story, I know, but just let's keep going. They separate and the kids begin to resent their parents, disassociate from their parents. And over time they disassociate with one another. They even changed their own names because they want nothing to do with the family that they were a part of. There's so much visible and outward disunity within this family that we would obviously question whether this is a true family. But regardless, regardless of the fact that there's all of this disunity, regardless of the fact that there's all the quarreling and fighting that has separated them, led them to live completely opposite lives away from each other, it doesn't change the fact that they are still a family. They are still a family despite all of that. Now, would any of us whether family or friend who sees that family or another family in a similar situation, will we look at that and say, ah, but there's still one family, and carry on? Would we desire to leave that family in that state? No, of course not. We would seek to, to, to speak into their lives in hopes of bringing about restoration and reconciliation to the family. Hoping to restore unity again between the family. Hoping to, to work out the issues within that family. Hoping to speak into the error. Hoping to speak into the sin in order that there would be reconciliation. And that there would be a visible and outward manifestation of that reality that they are still a family. And this is the point that I'm getting at with the church. The church appears to be so disunified. Seems to be so separated. And in a sense, in a sense it is. Because visibly, that's what we see. It appears to be that way. But that doesn't change the fact that there is the one Spirit, the one Lord, the one Father, and the one body. And the one church and the one God and Father over that family. It hasn't changed that reality. But Paul's aware of this. Paul's aware of this, this paradox, if you will. That there is this inseparable unity in the church. He's aware of that truth. He just spent three chapters going over this truth. And these last couple of verses that we've spent, he realizes that, acknowledges that, but he also acknowledges the fact that, ah, but this church is so disunified outwardly and visibly in so many ways. So what does Paul do? Does he say, ah, we're one family, let it be, regardless of the disunity, regardless of the sin and the quarreling and the fighting that separated this church does he leave it there? No, he presses in. He presses in. Look again, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are to pursue maintenance of this unity. But how? How do we do it? I love again what John Stott says. He says, there, can, there seems to be but one possible answer to this question. Namely, that to maintain the church's unity is to maintain it visibly. Here is an apostolic exhortation to preserve in actual concrete relationships of love that unity which God has created in which neither man nor demon can destroy. We are to demonstrate to the world, catch this, we are to demonstrate to the world that the unity we say exists indestructibly is not the rather sick joke it sounds to be, but is a true and glorious reality. So what are the characteristics of this maintenance? What characterizes this maintenance of unity? He says, humility, gentleness or meekness, patience or long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Simple, right? All right, we can go home. It's done. Be humble, be meek, be patient, be loving. It's very simple. But we know from experience, this is not easy. It's simple, but it is not easy. We're to be humble, lowly in spirit. Humility, the disposition of assessing oneself appropriately. Especially in light of one's sinfulness and creatureliness. Meekness, acting in a manner that is gentle and mild, even tempered. This is not weakness. This is not weakness at all. This is someone who understands their potential strength, however much strength there is there. Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's not at all. But this is someone who recognizes their strengths and maybe their weaknesses and acts in a manner that is gentle mild, and even-tempered. We're to be patient, long-suffering, enduring of pain and unhappiness, especially in this context, pain and unhappiness that's caused by others. Again, this is simple. And the concept is simple. But it is not easy. Why is it so difficult, is the question. We can talk for a long time on why it is so difficult. Now, obviously, this isn't difficult when we act with, interact with likable people, right? People that we agree with, people that we get along with, people that agree with our different stances and, and opinions on uh, different issues, whether it be political or theological. That's easy, right? These are people that we think d- deserve to be shown some humility and meekness because they seem to be on our level. 
They respect us with the respect we think we deserve, so we respect them with the respect we think they deserve. That's easy. But what about those that are not so likable, that are not so agreeable? How do we interact with those? Uh, I remember a couple weeks ago when we were at youth group, one of the icebreaker just questions for fun that I threw out to the youth group was, it was a would you rather question, which if you're familiar with a would you rather question, uh, they can go south pretty fast. And uh, this one sort of did. The question I threw out was, um, would you rather spend the rest of your life alone or only around annoying people all the time? Do you know what about 90, 95% of the group said? Your kids, by the way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what they said? They said they'd rather be alone. They said, I'm pretty sure one said I'm around annoying people all the time so my life wouldn't change. I don't remember who it is, so I'm not going to say a name. But, but what does that tell us? That we would rather be alone for the rest of our lives than have to learn how to interact with other people? Maybe potentially annoying people? Unagreeable people? Maybe people who have treated us poorly? People who have a rough past? That when we see? Uh, I'd like to spend time with these people, but not this person. Their past appears to be a little bit too edgy. I don't know if that's rubbed off of them yet, and I don't know if I want that to rub onto me and my family. How do we interact with those people? The same way we interact and care and love and relate to the people that we seem to like and agree with. Humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience, love, and eagerness to maintain unity. I love that word. There's an eagerness about this desire to maintain unity. There's an eagerness that Paul is calling us to put forward effort in maintaining unity. It's not just a general, right, light. Eh, I'm going to maintain unity today, maybe next week. No, this is an eagerness that he's calling us to maintain. That he's calling us to keep. That he's calling us to build up. That he's calling us to promote in and amongst ourselves, in our own church and among other churches. We're to be eager to maintain Unity, the unity of the Spirit in that bond of peace. So what makes this so difficult? In short, sin. What makes it so difficult to be humble and patient toward people, to be meek in relation to people, to be loving and kind toward people? What is it that gets in the way? Sin, which often leads us to be the opposite of what the apostle is calling us to be. And what's the opposite in most of these cases? Specifically, pride. 
It's pride. It's pride that puts a wedge between us and forgiving those that have hurt us. Most often. It's pride that puts a wedge between us being humble toward those that we don't think deserve our respect. It's pride that puts us between relating to those who have a rough or questionable past. It's pride that gets in the way of us of interacting with people that might disagree with us politically. Again, theologically. Oftentimes, most often, it is pride. And what's the remedy to this for us? We fight our sinful inclination. We fight our sinful inclination, eagerly pursuing humility, meekness, patience, in love with the goal of maintaining and guarding and preserving Christian unity. Because of who the church is. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. His family. We seek to be eager to maintain unity. We seek to be eager to reconcile broken relationships. Because of who the church is. And who created the church and who bled and died for the church. We pursue unity. How is this done? Through prayer. How do we fight it? Through prayer. Dependency upon the Spirit. Looking to Christ and His Word. Contemplating the Lord. Contemplating the Gospel. Thinking about the Gospel. And some actual effort. I know it's scary to use that word sometimes, but actual effort put forward in seeking to maintain unity. Again, independence, total dependence on the power of the Spirit working in and through us. Looking to Christ, who is our ultimate example of this. And looking to the Lord and God, His patience toward us and His long-suffering toward us when we were undeserving of it. And if we spend our time contemplating that reality, the reality of the Lord as triune and His works as they relate to that, relate to this persons, as we contemplate and think about the Gospel, as we contemplate and think about who we are, apart from Christ, and in light of who Christ is and what we have been made to be, when we're spending our time thinking about that, setting our minds upon that, how can we not be humble and meek and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in love? So what about with local churches? other local churches, especially ones that we're skeptical of, specifically maybe skeptical of, skeptical of theologically, answer in the same exact manner as was just mentioned. In humility, meekness, patience, long-suffering, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about compromising fundamental Christian truth 
for the sake of being peaceful here. I'm not talking about compromising the one statements that were just mentioned. The one faith. The one gospel that is founded upon the reality that God has saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I'm not talking about compromising those truths. We do not waver against those. We do not waver at the truth that our Lord God is triune. And there is the one body, the one church, because there is the one Holy Spirit, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. We do not compromise on those truths. To compromise, to compromise on those truths for the sake of unity, I think would actually promote more disunity and create more disunity in the church than we think it would. Holding to these realities, these truths, these one statements that we've spent time in, and the biblical definition of them, which we can see Paul working out earlier in the book of Ephesians and just the rest of, of his letters. Holding to these realities and the biblical definition of them is a requirement for any church that is claiming to be a true and legitimate Christian church. And implicit within those one statements is a belief in the Trinity. If you want further explanation on that look to the last, what, 16 weeks of sermons? Listen, within the household of Christianity, there's a hallway and there's many different rooms. Many different denominations. And there are disagreements among those denominations. So how do we relate to them? I think consider Paul. Consider the Apostle Paul as he relates to the New Testament churches. Let's use him as an example. Let's look specifically at the Corinthian church. A broken, jacked up, messy, weak, error-filled, sinful church. Yet, what do we see Paul doing? Associating with them. Thanking God for them. They remain to be a church. They remain to be a Christian church. Despite the fact that there is tons and tons and tons of error and sin, gross sin, committed against the Lord and committed against other people within the church. There's tons of it. And what do we see Paul doing? Thanking God for them, but also rebuking them and pointing out the error and pointing out the sin, pressing into the drama, pressing into the tension, pressing into the issues in order that they would be reconciled with one another, and ultimately they would be reconciled with the Lord, but yet they still remain a church. And Paul seeks them out in an effort of love and in an eagerness to maintain unity within the church, despite their error, despite their sin. 
And if the Corinthian church still remains to be a Christian church to Paul, it should remain to be a Christian church in the mind of us as well. Along with many other churches, we've probably been guilty of condemning for not being a true and legitimate church. Because perhaps they don't hold to a specific distinctive that we do. Again, I'm not talking about the compromise of fundamental Christian truth. These one statements that we've made. The truth of the Trinity. I'm not talking about those. As we wrap this last big idea up, consider um, this quote from, from John Calvin that I think is, is, is great as it relates to um, Christians who are eager to live pious or holy lives, who are seeking to, to honor their Lord, honor the Lord with, with understanding Him, growing in their knowledge of Him and His doctrine. Listen to what he says. He says, We ever find that even those who have not been deficient in their zeal for piety, nor in reverence and sobriety in handling the mysteries of God, have by no means agreed among themselves on every point. For God hath hath, hath never favored His servants with so great a benefit that they were all endowed with full and perfect knowledge in everything. And no doubt for this end, that he might keep them humble. And secondly, to render them disposed to cultivate brotherly discourse. I love that. To this end, that he might keep them humble and render them disposed to cultivate brotherly discourse, which I would say also promotes better unity than no discourse at all. It is better and more promoting of unity to disagree and enter into brotherly discussion than to disagree and enter into no discussion at all. Are we a people that are eager to maintain unity? Are we a people that understand the reality that God has one church, one body that's inseparable? May we be humble, meek, and patient with others. The unity by which God Himself has created and established is worthy to be kept. Therefore, let us eagerly endeavor to keep, promote, and maintain it with humility, meekness, patience, and love. As we wrap up, just two quick applications. One, one for believers. Obviously, be eager to maintain unity between the church, within the church, and between churches. And also, seek membership. Seek membership with a local, visible body, church. This is the primary place within the context of a visible, gathered body. This is the primary context where this unity of the body And the building up of the body is to be maintained and experienced. It is this way by experience and also because the Lord declares it to be so. This is the place in the gathering of the saints where we experience, as Chad talked about the last two weeks, 
the, the means of grace being distributed, the, the word and the sacraments, the prayer, the singing together, all of that we see and experience most clearly demonstrated here in the gathering of the saints. And not to mention also, without spending much time in it, but, but as, as Paul continues in chapter 4, and he gives mention to these ministry gifts, these gifts of, uh, and, and these gifts of the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, whose role it is, an authoritative role to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, to bring about maturity, to keep the church from, from wavering from, to every wind of doctrine, so that the church would be built on truth and love, and it would build itself up in love. Do not neglect this great reality of the visible body of Christ. And one last application for unbelievers. Trust in Christ. It brings me no joy to say this, but outside of Christ, you are not a part of this one body. This one body that we've talked about that is one body by the one Spirit who has the one head, the one church, the one family. You are outside of this body. This body has the one faith and the one hope to which it's called to. The one inheritance that it shares. You do not partake in the salvation and the inheritance of this body. It brings me no joy or delight to say that, but it does bring me great joy and delight to say that we have a God who sent His Son to shed His blood so that by faith in Him, by looking to Him by faith, trusting and believing in Him, you might be united to this body. And so experience this great salvation, this great inheritance, and this great communion with this God and with this people now and forever. The church is the one body, united by the one Spirit, whose head is the one Lord, and who are the children of the one Father. Our unity is a deeply Trinitarian unity and is worthy to be kept. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you so much for your grace, for the salvation that is ours in Christ, for the hope that we have in him. God, we thank you that we have unity with one another. We thank you that you are our one Father. God, we pray that you are glorified with our lives as we seek to love you and to love others. In your son's name we pray, amen.